We'll hear argument first today in case 07-1410, United States versus Navajo Nation. General Needler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Six years ago, this Court rejected the Navajo Nation's claim for damages in connection with the same action that is before the Court here. The Secretary's approval of amendments to the tribe's mineral lease in the mid-1980s. The Court held there that in order for the United States to be held liable under the Tucker Act or the Indian Tucker Act, the claimant must identify at the threshold a specific rights-creating or duty-imposing statutory or regulatory prescription that the government has allegedly violated. The Court found no warrant in any relevant statute or regulation to impose liability on the United States. In particular, the Court concluded that the approval of the royalty rates in the tribe's lease was governed by the Indian Mineral Leasing Act of 1938, or IMLA. Looking at IMLA's framework, the Court held that there was no, quote, textual basis, close quote, in any pertinent statutory or regulatory provision that required the Secretary to insist that the tribe negotiate for a higher rate. Well, it said pertinent or relevant, but surely that's limited to the statutory provisions that we examined in the case. But um, I, I think the way to look at it is what the Court said. There, it found no warrant in any relevant statute or regulation, and it discussed not just IMLA but several other statutes, which, which did have to do with uh, the economic — excuse me, the economic terms of leases, but, but, it, but, the but question, didn't govern. The question presented, General Needler, was limited to IMLA, to the Mineral Leasing Act. Well, the that way — go- That was the government's question presented. The, the, uh, two things about that. The government's question presented was that the Court could not find the United States liable, or was whether the Court could find the United States liable without finding a violation of IMLA. And therefore, the premise of the question was, without finding a violation of IMLA, the United States could not be liable, and the Court found no violation of IMLA. But beyond that, the tribe's principal submission in, in this Court was that, there, that the United States had control through a network of statutes, including the ones they rely on here. Um, but they, the Court also itself, on page 30 of its brief in that case, identified the relevant statutes as being um, IMLA, and uh, the other two that this Court discussed, and the general introduction to the Rehabilitation Act. So I think the structure of the Court's opinion, looking at the way the tribe served it up, the Court said there has to be a specific violation of a, of a, of a statutory or regulatory prescription. The Court found that the relevant one was IMLA, and it found no violation. Uh, and therefore, and, and the Court also said the tribe's claim, not simply arguments made in favor of a claim, must fail. But uh, — if the Court concludes that its prior decision did not, did not absolutely foreclose the litigation, uh, we, we think it's clear that the framework that this Court announced in, uh, or reaffirmed in, Nav- in Navajo 1 itself does foreclose the claim here. As I said, the Court concluded that IMLA is the statute that governs the approval of royalty terms in coal leases. On remand, the Federal Circuit relied on two other statutes addressing other subjects, the Surface Mining Reclamation and Control Act, which has to do with the regulation of environmental issues, matters that may arise in connection with the coal lease, and the, uh, the uh, Hopi Navajo Rehabilitation Act of 1950, which set in motion a general governmental program to rehabilitate and improve the economic life of uh, the Navajo and Hopi Indians. But that, 
Neither of those statutes had anything to do with the approval of the economic terms of coal leases. That was governed by IMLA. So the fact that the Federal Circuit on remand held the United States liable on the basis of two statutes that have nothing to do with coal leasing, minus the statute that did have something to do with coal leasing, in our view, shows how far the Federal Circuit has strayed from this Court's teachings. But beyond that, we think it's a fortiori that the Court of Appeals erred in its alternative holding, which was that the United States could be held liable on the basis of general common law um, principles. The Tucker Act and the Indian Tucker Act provide that the United States may be liable only for a violation of an act of Congress or a regulation. And it was for that reason that this Court stated in Navajo in the Navajo One case that there has to be a violation of a specific statutory or regulatory provision. Even as a general matter, under this Court's jurisprudence, there is only a very limited role for federal common law. But that is especially so when what we are talking about here is liability for damages under a waiver of sovereign immunity, and the usual sovereign immunity principles have to cast uh, considerable doubt on that. Only an act of Congress or a regulation adopted pursuant to uh, congressionally conferred authority can provide for the payment of money out of the Federal Treasury. Are are there cases in in the Courts of Appeals uh, where Indian tribes — Litigate with the secretary and claim an abuse of discretion for the way in which the secretary performs the duties with respect to Indian lands. Under the Administrative Procedure Act, there could be there could be claims brought, but th- those would not be for money damages. I, 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 I recognize right. that, but I want to know: is there a body of law in the federal circuit that generally recognizes that the that the secretary has a fiduciary obligation that's enforceable as a as a matter of administrative law? I, it, not in the Federal Circuit, to my, to my knowledge, because, because the Administrative I, Procedure by, by, Act — I meant, I meant all of the circuits. Yes. Now, it, it, um, in the — under the Administrative Procedure Act, I'm not uh, — just like any, any party could claim — could challenge what was done by the Department uh, taking particular administrative action. And I think there are Well, what I was asking was whether there's some doctrine that the, uh, that the trustee — that the Secretary acts in a capacity, a fiduciary capacity, as a trustee. If that doctrine were out there, then that might be the basis for saying that it's — uh, a sufficient foundation for money damage. I was just asking, is that no, it, from there? No, not, n- not in the way you've put it. That I'm, there, there are cases that certainly talk about the, the, the Secretary has trust responsibilities, but there, there are a lot of ways in which that concept can be used. It can be used in, in, in a political sense in that the United States government, through treaties or, or a general sense of moral responsibility, should look out for the Indians. And, and in, the, in the day-to-day administration of Indian affairs, to, to uh, contemplate a trust responsibility is simply to mean that the United States has a special relationship and, and should deal in that manner. And under, under the Administrative Procedure Act, if there, is, if there is an action the United States takes under a statute that governs Indian affairs, that would be, that would be subject to judicial review under the general principles. Is it arbitrary and capricious under normal principles to substantial evidence sustain the, the determination? But particularly in a suit for money damages in, uh, under, the, under the Tucker Act, uh, and where Congress has said there has to be a violation of a, of a money-mandating statute or, or, or regulation, general common law principles uh, do not suffice. As I said, for money damages, only Congress 
or an ex- executive agency under for acting pursuant to congressional authority under the Constitution can provide for the payment of, dam- of uh, money out of the Federal tre- Treasury. I, I, this may be a purely academic <laughs> distinction, but you've talked in terms of liability. Are you suggesting that the trust principles do not set a standard to which the Secretary is bound, or simply that they don't constitute a waiver of sovereign immunity? Um, I, I think it's really both. The, the general trust principles, um, at, at, least, at least, again, under Tucker Act jurisprudence, uh, general trust principles uh, are, are not what establish the, the, the Secretary's duties. It's the, it's the acts of Congress that impose duties on the Secretary in this area, as in any others, or regulations the Secretary has prescribed under it. Now, under this Court's jurisprudence, uh, the Court has said that the notion of trust is uh, relevant at the second stage of the analysis. The first stage is the threshold requirement that there be a specific statute or regulation that it imposes duties or, or um, um, rights. Uh, at, if the Court finds that, then at the second stage, as this Court um, has held in, in Mitchell too, and, and, and indicated in, in Navajo as well, um, that may be relevant to determine whether those specific duty-imposing statutes in turn also impose li- monetary liability on the United States under for a both, violation. Uh, under both IMLA and the Rehabilitation Act, leases have to be approved by the Secretary. Doesn't that impose a duty on the Secretary? Well, what, what the Court said in, in, uh, in Navajo, specifically with respect to IMLA, the Secretary, yes, does have to approve it, but the Court specifically rejected the proposition that there was any basis for liability uh, stemming from the Secretary's uh, approval of the lease. Well, under the Rehabilitation Act, if it applied to this lease, what would the Secretary's duty be? It would be — uh, Section 5 of the Rehabilitation Act for approval of leases is essentially — uh, the same as IMLA. It provides for the Secretary to approve the lease. But as this Court held in IMLA, the, or, um, in Navajo 1, the theory of IMLA is, is not to have the Secretary be responsible or to take the lead in leasing tribal lands for coal purposes. It's the tribe subject to the approval. And the Court concluded it would be inconsistent with that arrangement for the Secretary to second-guess uh, the, the determinations that the Secretary um, had made. And the Court — the argument was made there and, and, re, and expressly rejected that the Secretary was required to insist that the tribe negotiate a higher um, a, amount when it renegotiated the lease. The Secretary has to apply some standard, presumably. What, what is it? Well, what, uh, what the Secretary has, has adopted — has done is, by regulation, is to say that, uh, that there is a minimum that the tribe cannot go below. At the time — at the time of the renegotiation of this lease in 1987, from 1984 to 1987, there was a minimum of, of uh, 10 percent or 10 cents per ton. The tribe was getting 37.5 cents uh, per ton. This lease was renegotiated per, uh, in connection with a clause in the lease that allowed adjustments for reasonable rates, which is not the same thing as, the, as maximizing the tribe's uh, uh, the, the, the tribe's uh, revenues. So the Secretary had a regulation at the time of 10 cents per ton. The Secretary now has a regulation that says the minimum uh, royalty rate will be 12.5 percent, which, as this Court pointed out in Navajo 1, is the standard royalty rate for federal and tribal leases throughout the United States. Now, what, what's significant in, in further response to your question is that regulation states that uh, the minimum rate is 12.5 percent unless the Secretary determines that a lower rate 
would be in the best interest of the Indians. So what the way this works then, the way the Secretary has implemented it, it's basically up to the tribe to negotiate something at or above the minimum. If it's below the minimum that the Secretary has prescribed, the Secretary has to make a judgment that that going lower, maybe because of the uh, geological conditions or whatever, uh, is in the best interest of the Indians. And that is that is borne out. I, 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 is, that, is that in IMLA or is that in the rehabilitation? That's an IMLA. That's an IMLA regulation. Uh, the, the general regulations that implement the Rehabilitation Act have a similar provision. They don't talk about royalties, which I think is telling, because royalties have to do with coal leases. They talk about uh, they require that there be a fair rental for, um, for uh, property, not maximum rental, but a fair rental. And then it has the same sort of thing, that if, if, it's, if it's going to be below the fair market value, it has to be in the best interest of the Indians. And I think it's instructive that um, I know there's been an argument that this lease is governed by the, by the Rehabilitation Act rather than IMLA, not, notwithstanding what this Court held in, in Navajo one six years ago. But in 1999, when Secretary Babbitt, who joined the brief arguing that this is, is covered by the Rehabilitation Act, uh, approved the uh, amend, amendments to the lease in 1999, he pr- approved it under the IMLA regulations, and he specifically said that because the minimum royalty rate is 12.5 percent, he's quoting the applicable regulation, I do not have to decide whether the royalty rate is in the best interest of the Indians. He went on to say, but I think it is. So uh, Secretary Babbitt's approval of those amendments really explains the way the Secretary has has implemented this statutory scheme, and we think that's certainly well within the Secretary's uh, discretion under a statute that that did not uh, impose uh, any limitations. Uh, With respect to the Rehabilitation Act, the general leasing provision of that Act, as we've explained in our brief, does not apply to mineral leases. That continued to be governed by IMLA after 1950. But even if it did, there's nothing in in Section 5 that imposes any more specific duties with respect to to royalty terms or any other terms than IMLA itself. Section 5 has to do with surface uh, leases for surface uses, business purposes, uh, basically. And that was put in there because at the time there was no provision for long-term leases if someone wanted to bring a surface commercial venture onto a, uh, onto a reservation. But the last, uh, the last sentence of Section 5 of the, of the Act on page uh, um, 171A of, of, the, um, of the petition appendix says that nothing contained in Section 5 shall affect the authority, shall be construed or to repeal or affect the authority under any other act of Congress, so such, and, and the other act of Congress here uh, is, is IMLA. I think it's also instructive to point out, not only did this Court hold the last time around that this lease was governed by IMLA, uh, that, that was uh, uh, the tribe's position in this case. It's proposed findings of fact, indeed, in the Court of Federal Claims, uh, pages 524 and 525 of the Joint Appendix said this, that the lease was governed by uh, by IMLA. But, the, but the, the textual dispositive point is this lease couldn't have been entered into under the Rehabilitation Act. The, the lease in this case provided that the lease would be for a term of 10 years uh, and then subject to a, a further extension for as long as minerals 
are produced in paying quantities. That precise language is, is repeated in the lease, which shows that it was under IMLA. Under the Section 5 of the Rehabilitation Act, the lease could only be for an initial term of 25 years and then a further term of 25 more years. It wouldn't have allowed for this sort of lease here. And indeed, because the initial lease term here was 10 years and then could have only been 25 more years under uh, under the Rehab Act, this lease would have had to expire in 1999, and yet it was amended at that time and continues in effect, and mining continues under it. The, so, the, the other side says that uh, certain standard provisions in the IMLA leases did, did not exist in this lease. Is, is, is that accurate? Uh, no. I, I, well, they said — I, I think the — the only thing I think they say along those lines is, is that um, — has to do with forms of the lease, I, if I'm — With I'm, forms? The, the form on which, in which the lease is used. I, I think what they said is that there were several provisions that appear in regulations under general leasing statutes that are in these — are in these leases. They aren't in these leases. One has to do with the, the property can't be used for unlawful purposes, um, and um, — I'm forgetting what the second one was, but it, it wouldn't be unusual that the that the secretary might borrow or that or the tribe might borrow uh, provisions from other leases and put them in put them in this lease. This is a again, IMLA provides for negotiation, and so the parties are free to put in particular provisions of lease. So the the fact that there might be things that would parallel what were in the other leases. Um, we, we don't we don't think it's really dispositive. And also the the other significant thing is that the, re the lease itself incorporates or, or refers to by reference the IMLA regulations. Um, so e even if somehow this uh, lease were thought to be governed by Section 5, even though that wasn't what it was issued under, um, the, the IMLA regulations would control, and this Court already held in Navajo 1, that those IMLA regulations, which are in the lease, do not impose any — did not impose any duty on the Secretary with respect to the uh, approval um, approval of the lease. should also be, uh, point out that when the — we cite this in our, in our brief, that at the time the lease amendments were approved in 1987, the Solicitor's Office did a, did a legal review of the propriety of the lease amendments, and that legal review expressly says that the lease was entered into under, uh, under IMLA. So I, I think the, the circumstances are really overwhelming that, that, uh, that it was entered into under IMLA and that the, the Rehabilitation Act lease provision does not have anything to do with this lease. And the more general emanations from the, from the Rehabilitation Act that the tribe uh, seeks to rely on here are, are, are too general uh, in, in short. The, the, the Rehabilitation Act was enacted in 1950 to re, in recognition that the plight of the Navajo and, and Hopi was very serious, and, it, and Congress undertook to study resources and put in infrastructure and that, and that sort of thing. And, and part of it was to have uh, programs — or, excuse me, studies to determine what the tribe's coal resources were, and that was done. And this lease grew out of that, but that doesn't mean that it was in any way governed. Uh, by the Rehabilitation Act. General Needler, last time, last time around, we remanded for further proceedings consistent with our opinion. Would you advocate a different bottom line this time? Yes, I would, I would suggest that this case be reversed. I mean, this, this concerns a outright and with directions to dismiss the complaint. This, this controversy arose in the mid-1980s. 
Uh, the litigation has been going on since uh, 1993, and it's been — this is now the second time that it's been uh, — that it's been to this Court. Uh, and we think in doing so that the, that the Court should reiterate the analytical framework that it put forward in, in its decision the last time around so that there will be no mistaking the way these cases are to be handled in the Federal Circuit uh, in the future by, by requiring at the threshold a, as I said, a specific statutory or regulatory provision that imposes duties and not in particular looking at general notions of common law that, that might arise out of, out of some sort of, uh, some sort of factual uh, control. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say is that the Federal Circuit also relied on the Surface Mining Con uh, Reclamation and Control Act, and that, and that, as I said, has to do with the environmental issues in connection with, with Indian leases. Uh, the Federal Circuit relied on a provision that says that the, uh, that the Secretary should include in any Indian leases additional provisions that were proposed by the tribe, but that's additional provisions in addition to other environmental um, provisions stemming from the statute that had to be in the lease. It, it, would, it was just a, quite a stretch for the, for the Court to uh, conclude that that somehow controlled uh, economic terms of the leases. If there are no uh, further questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, General. Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I think I'd like to start with Justice Alito's question, because he said, doesn't Section 5 of the Rehabilitation Act specifically require the Secretary to approve this lease? And Mr. Needler conceded that it does. And so then the question is, doesn't that create some kind of a duty? And it seems to me clearly it does, just as the Court, I think, implicitly said in Navajo 1. The difference between Navajo 1 and Navajo 2 being that this Court then went on to examine IMLA, the Indian Mineral Leasing Act, and concluded that IMLA very specifically for the entirety of Native Americans and for the entirety of Indi Indian mineral leasing uh, had a preference to ensure that the Indian tribes themselves would, would attain a certain self-sufficiency, that it essentially abdicated the responsibility of having to deal with individual negotiations and allowed it to the, for the tribes to take over. But, the Mr. Phillips, I'm lo looking at the last paragraph of the opinion. It said, we have no warrant from any relevant statute or regulation, etc. So it wasn't limited to IMLA. Do you think that was just carelessness on the Court's part? Oh, I would, I would never assume that, Justice Ginsburg. I, 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 think, I think the operative term here is relevant, and that is that the Court, for purposes of analyzing the question presented and disposing of it, evaluated not only IMLA, but the other two provisions that the that the, that the Court felt were needed to be disposed of at that point. Uh, the Court didn't address uh, the alternative arguments under either SMACRO or the Rehabilitation Act. To be sure, they were argued, but I, I, I have seen many instances in which alternative arguments are made, and the Court simply I don't understand them. your answer. You, you say that those were not relevant, and therefore they were not covered by this. Not relevant to the question presented which is the proper interpretation of, of the Indian Mineral Leasing Act. And, indeed, if you look at the other two provisions, the opinion of the Court analyzes them through the, through the prism of the Indian Mineral Leasing Act and just says those don't add to the Indian Mineral Leasing Act. Our argument here is that Section 5 of the Rehabilitation Act provides a wholly independent basis on which there is a duty imposed, that that duty is then implemented through the regulations that are identified in the, in the Secretary's. In the Rehabilitation Act is, um uh, the requirement for approval of lease is, is is that applicable to mineral leases? 
Is that applicable to mineral yes. leases? Absolutely, that's ap- applicable to mineral leases. The, the language of the statute is business leases, including those for the development of uh, mineral resources. So it clearly applies to mineral leases, but it's, but it's not is, through the Indian Mineral Leasing I'm, Act. Where is the specific reference to mineral leases? Mineral resources, I Mineral resources. It's, I mean, it, it says resources. I don't remember it saying mineral resources. Yeah, the development of the resources of the Navajo and Hopi Indian. That's a big difference, don't you think? Uh, wait, I'm sorry. Development or utilization of natural resources. But the basic point there is that, at least as I read Section 5, what it's saying is that it grants broad leasing authority. The Solicitor General is absolutely right about that. But that authority extends to certain kinds of mineral leasing. And that's, a, and that's an authority. And it's important to recognize this, because while it is true for the run-of-the-mill Native Americans who are, who are engaged in mineral leasing, it may make sense to say, look, we, we're going to take a hands-off approach for the most part. We're going to set a minimum ceiling or a floor, and above that, you negotiate as hard as you want. But, but the Navajo were in a fundamentally different position in 1950 when this legislation was enacted. The, the median education on that, on that reservation was less than one year of education. The resources were $400 per year annual income. This was a tribe in horrible condition. And so it would make perfect sense for Congress to say, look, for, the, for most tribes, we want to go ahead and have the approval be based with the, with the, with the secretary taking an, a hands-off approach above a certain minimum. But, but when it, you deal with the Navajo — Is it your position that it would be — that it, it is not lawful for uh, coal on the Navajo reservation to be leased under IMLA? The lease would have to be — solely under Section No, I don't think it has to be solely under. I, I think that's a, a false dichotomy. I don't think this is an either-or proposition. I think there are parts of EMLA that can reasonably be applied here, and, and Section 5 specifically says no authority from other statutes which would include EMLA is meant to be superseded by the passage of Section 5. So I think there is a rule. But, and I think that this lease, if you, if you read the lease on its face, Justice Scalia asked the question, does, does this lease conform to the form lease that you get under EMLA? The answer is clearly not. There, this is a, a mix and match between some provisions that seem to me to clearly provide additional protection for the Navajo and other provisions that are but more generally what you would The lease use. doesn't follow the, the requirements of Section 5 of the Rehabilitation Act in, in, in respect to its term. But what is your — is it your position that in entering into a lease, the, the tribe has the authority to decide — we want this to be under IMLA. We want this to be under the Rehabilitation Act. No, when it I, comes up to the Secretary for approval, does the Secretary have the authority to say, I'm going to approve this under IMLA, I'm going to approve it under No, I, I think the Secretary has to approve it under both of those provisions. It's just that IMLA, in this particular context, would simply impose a ten-cent minimum per ton. What, what do you do about the fact that the term of this lease would, would not be permitted under the Rehabilitation Act. I think it would be permitted under the Rehabilitation Act because the last sentence of Section 5 specifically says that this is not meant to limit any other authority provided under any other statute. And since IMLA provides additional time, durational protections for the tribes in these circumstances, that provision would definitely allow you to use IMLA's time limits rather than the Rehabilitation Act. Okay, t- explain to me the, the, uh, the relative scope of IMLA and the Rehab Act. The, the argument that you made, that you just made, makes perfect sense uh, if the Rehab Act applies to some kinds of, of uh, leases, 
uh, or contracts uh, that the uh, that, that IMLA does not. Right. And yet I, I thought you were saying a little bit earlier that the Rehab Act applies to all mineral leasing because that would be the development of a natural resource. And if that is so, uh, then there seems to be a pretty clear conflict, even on your own argument, between the term provisions in the Rehab Act and the term provisions of IMLA with respect to, to mineral leases. How do, how do we get out of that problem? I, I th- I, yeah, I think the, the key distinction is to look at, the, at who is being regulated. And under the Rehabilitation Act, it's the Navajo and the Hopi. And, and Congress said, look, we're going to take special care to protect and to try to put them into a position where they can even just catch up to other Native Americans. And so it seems to me that there, that's a special protection with a special duty, and that duty is enforced through the 162 regulations. But it's a special protection, a special duty that applies to every one of the mineral leases, including this one, that the Navajo may be involved in. Correct. So I, what, maybe, maybe I missed the point, but would you go back to Justice Scalia's question? Uh, how is it that there is no. not a conflict here because between sec- this lease and the rehab? Because the last section of Section 5 says that, that notwithstanding anything else, this provision doesn't preclude, doesn't, doesn't limit authority that would otherwise exist. And the but, that in effect, that, but that, in effect, is saying this, uh, this provision will never apply to a mineral lease for the Navajo or the Hopi. I mean, you're reading it right out of the Act with respect to these two tribes. You mean with respect to all the three? No, 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 I'm sorry. It's because this provision applies to a lot of other leases, too. Are you asking about when would the 20, 20, 10 and 10 years limitation? My my point is, with respect to every mineral lease of the Hopi and the Navajo, you are saying the term provision never applies. Right. Isn't that correct? Right. No, I understand. Right. But I I have the answer to your question, which is this this provision in Section 5 applies not just to mineral leasing. It applies to all business site leases. But it only applies to those two tribes. And there is something very, very strange, it seems to me, in saying that the, that the kind of the, uh, the saving sentence at the end of Section 5 reads its very term limit provisions out of every, ref- uh, out of every possible application no, but, to a mineral lease by these two tribes. No, and that's what you're saying. But, but the, the, the important distinction, and I hope I can articulate this, is that Section 5 applies beyond mineral leases. I, re- I realize that. And so, all, so that time limitation of 10 years and 10 years, if you bring a barbershop, you want to build a barbershop on, the, on those lands, you want to lease the space in order to do that, you would be subject to the Section 5 time limitations, unless for some reason there's another authorization somewhere. That okay, but that, that in effect means that with, and, and I, I don't want to overdo your, your barbershop analysis, but that, our <laughs> example, but that in effect says haircut. On, 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 on trivial contracts, trivial lease contracts, uh, there are term limits. But on the ones that really count, where the real money is, does it suit at all? There is a, a Raytheon has strange. an entire defense plant on the Navajo tri- on the Navajo reservation right now that would obviously be subject to precisely these same limitations. So it's not just trivial, it's all business lease siting that's covered by that. So it seems to me not at all unreasonable to think that Congress in its, in its very protective effort here under Section 5 would say, you know, here are all the leases that you're allow, allowed to enter into. You've got broad leasing authority. We're going to protect you against overreaching by re- restricting how long you can go. But if there are other provisions of law that allow these to be modified in a particular area, we'll allow those to be modified in that way. And in this context, 
What that last sentence would, would, to my mind, say is there's no reason to try to reckon, to, to say IMLA or the Rehabilitation Act. It seems to me much more sensible to say that, that Congress would have intended multiple protections. Let's, let's assume that, and I, 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 I think your argument is well taken, but assuming that, uh, don't we also have to assume that the stress in IMLA uh, on placing primary responsibility on the tribes, not on the secretary, uh, should in fact also be imported to the application of the Rehab Act as you say it should be applied. Right. But see, I don't think that's an authority. I would say I would not read. Well, what's not an authority? I, the, the notion that the the Navajo tribe would be in a position to better to better to uh, 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 I'm sorry to achieve self-sufficiency. Okay. You made a good argument a few moments ago for the fact that it would have been at least at one time inappropriate to thrust that responsibility on the Navajo, but there was no Navajo exception in IMLA. That responsibility uh, no, sure, was there is no, on the Navajo, but that, no, and, that's, but, and, and this Court recognized Right. But that's exactly why I think the Navajo Rehabilitation Act in 1950 does modify IMLA with respect and its effects. With respect to that, I'm sorry? The opinion in the last time around not only contained the statement that I read before that is any relevant statute, but in, in the very beginning it says, we hold the tribe's claim for compensation from the federal government fails. And there is a well-known distinction between a claim and an issue. and attributing to the Court that kind of carelessness for saying that the claim is barred as distinguished from an issue, the issue being IMLA. I think the Court was conscious of that distinction when it used the word that the claim fails, not just the issue. Obviously, Justice Ginsburg, you're in a much better position to judge what, (laughs) what was intended here. On the other hand, my experience with the Court generally is that when you analyze a case, you analyze it in terms of the specific question that's presented, and if you were proposing to go beyond the question presented, you say so expressly, not simply by the use of of the word claim or argument. So while I recognize that the court, that the government has has an argument to be made that this pre-decided that, I think, frankly, one, the court didn't decide this issue, and two, the court should decide the question that we've presented here as to the scope of Section 5, because it's obviously of extraordinary importance uh, to the, not only Section 5, but also uh, Section 8 as well. Mr. Phillips, the government says that uh, by the time this lease was uh, executed, uh, the Rehabilitation Act was a dead letter, that it was meant to stimulate economic activity on the Navajo Reservation, and there were funds uh, appropriated for that purpose, and that had all been played out by, by the time this lease was uh, was entered into. Is, is there something wrong with that? Yeah, the, the government's wrong about that. I mean, there's the, the, the program itself is for the overall rehabilitation of the Navajo and the Hopi. There are a series of projects that the, 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 or the, where the statute says such programs shall include the following projects. It doesn't say it's limited to the following projects. And those projects are then set out with a set of times. But the program itself is not, is not limited that way. And, and more fundamentally, it is completely inconsistent with that kind of time limitation on the statute overall. The Congress would have repealed certain sections of this Act, Sections 9 and 10, 
after the 10-year period had expired if the statute didn't have any continuing implication. It also would have meant that the leasing protections in Section 5 had expired after 10 years, which seems to me quite inconsistent uh, with the overall purpose here to, to accomplish that. So I, I think the temporal argument doesn't get the government uh, particularly far. I'd like to take a second to talk about sort of what I think is an, an important distinction between 635 and other provisions, which is that 635A imposes a duty. As the Secretary's brief, I think, elegantly st- sets out, that duty means that you have to make sure there's fair market value, that these are reasonable rates, and, and, the, and that was not done. And these, so that's the violation that took place. And then the question is, is there a money-generating, money-mandating obligation imposed here? And there it seems to me the distinction between Section 635A which says nothing about liability, and 635B and C, which expressly expressly excludes the possibility of liability, suggests clearly why 635A ought to be viewed by this Court as a sufficient — as creating a fair inference, is what the Court said in Mitchell II, a fair inference uh, under these these particular Mm -hmm. circumstances. The other — issue that we have put on the table that the government didn't actually address in its opening, although I suspect that You're saying that 635A creates an inference that 635C creates the fiduciary duty? No, 635A creates the fiduciary duties. The, 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 the juxtaposition of A to B and C demonstrates that that duty is a money-mandating or rights-creating duty that's enforceable under the Indian Tucker Act, Justice Breyer. The other duty, it seems to me, that the, that the Secretary breached here is the duty embedded in Section 8 of the statute, which requires him to make disclosures uh, as part of this program. And the one thing that's absolutely clear, that the Court of Federal Claims judge uh, — Well, what, what, no, it's, that's the part I'm not getting. You're saying the question, I guess, basically is, does the language of 635A, which says with the approval of the Secretary, right. the Indians can, among other things, for business purposes — Lease the land. Right? right. That's what it says. Right. And then the, okay. and that doesn't a, seem that much different from the IMLA, to tell you the truth. I mean, right. to me, it doesn't right. seem different at all. So now you're saying, no, it's really different because look at B and C. Right. It's your basic argument. Right. Oh, and so I look at B and C, and uh, it says, well, when you lease something under B and C, which is not A, it's B and C, uh, you have to have all this uh, super little supervision and so forth, or it has to be at a fair value, something like that. Is that right? No, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't. E and C say uh, that land is owned in fee, but it can't — let's see. What is — sorry, I don't want to delay you up this. I thought that B and C, you were saying, create an obligation, create more of a trust obligation. No, I just uh, — just to read uh, B, which unfortunately isn't reproduced, I don't think, in any of the papers, but it's, it's — uh, it says, notwithstanding any other provision of law, land owned in fee simple by the Navajo may be leased, sold, or otherwise disposed of by the sole authority of the Tribal Council no. in any manner that similar land in the State is situated may be leased, sold, or otherwise disposed of by private landowners, and the, such disposition shall create no liability no. on the part of the United States. Now, so why does that, why does that mean that this Act uh, creates a trust relationship? No, the, the — the, the, the trust relationship it doesn't come out of the B and C. The money-creating component of it, it seems to me, comes out of B and C. The trust relationship comes from the fact that the, the entirety of the statute was enacted to implement the treaties, that these are all lands that are held in trust, and, that's, and that there is a specific duty 
embedded in A that requires that the Secretary approve what is otherwise basically controlled as no trust arrangement, and that that is then implemented through regulations that require the Secretary to do this under a fair market value standard. Well, well give me an example. And incidentally, the statute is in the opposition brief, of the orange brief at page 5. Uh, give me an example of why the last clause and such disposition shall create no liability on the part of the United States. What contingency was that directed to, if not the one that's before us? Well, that, that's for the sale of feed simple lands. And so it's dealing with a, with a very different set of, of circumstances. It's just talking about a, it's a, it. I mean, it's aimed clearly at a different set of property that are being held, and, and, and therefore they said when you engage in leases for, the, for that kind of property, there's no liability. But, but your, your argument is that simply because there isn't that kind of an exclusion in A, there must have been an intent to permit liability. A fair inference, yeah. I think, is all that I, that I have to demonstrate. In this Thank context. you. Now, but what, of course, is at the back of my mind is, is I'm trying to say, is this, is this statute stronger for you than the statute we already considered? And I start with some suspicion, because I think if it was a stronger statute for you, you would have argued it the last time. I wouldn't hear the So I wonder why you didn't. <laughs> I wouldn't hear the so Somebody thought maybe it was a weaker statute, so, but I'll put that suspicion aside. Can I answer that? I want to know, that's the fundamental question in my mind. I look at the language and so forth. The language doesn't seem any stronger for you, at least at first blush. Right. There are two, there are two answers. I was being facetious as to why we didn't push this argument the, the last time. It was largely because... The Federal Circuit the last time concluded, based on EMLA alone, that there was, in fact, a sufficient uh, rights-creating provision, and therefore but, but so we did, defended so that part of the judgment. Those. Last time around, you acknowledged that P the Peabody lease was governed only by EMLA. That, that, those words were from your brief last time around. I don't know if those were from the brief. I know there was a, a statement of undisputed facts in the first round of litigation. But there's no question that then the Court, if we're right, that the Court remanded to, to, for consideration consistent with this. We then went down upon remand from the Federal Circuit. We took additional discovery, and we obtained the information that we got. And also, remember, the United States brief in the Ninth Circuit specifically says that this was approved pursuant to the Rehabilitation well, Act and the trust responsibility. You're really saying you were wrong in making that concession. That was an overstatement. There's no question. Based on what we knew at the time. It's, we thought it was, in fact, an EMLA lease. But the but truth it, is, it's not either or anyway. It is, it is the statute that seems most closely in point, because it's the only one that talks about mineral leases exclusively. Yes, but this is the only one that deals specifically with the Navajo Reservation and deals with leasing for business purposes for the development of resources. And so while I, I agree with you in one sense, the other one has, a, has some superficial closeness here. It seems to me that the closer one is actually the provision that deals with this specific reservation and this specific type of a lease arrangement. But you As I said, I don't think that's, that's, not, that's not something you discovered on remand. You knew all that before. Well, we, we obtained additional information, certainly. Uh, you know, we have the Udall declaration that specifically said that when he negotiated this lease, he negotiated it as the centerpiece of the Navajo Hopi Rehabilitation Act of 1950. And that affidavit was before or after our decision the first time around? It was after the first time around. I mean, there's no question that if we had won the first time around, we, we would have stood by that statement. But having lost it, <laughs> we, 
there is a tendency to focus the mind elsewhere, and we did. Uh, but the reality is that if you look at the parties, the, the Secre Secretary Udall specifically says this was, an, this was adopted pursuant to the Rehabilitation Act. Peabody Coal Company in briefing in the Arizona courts has specifically said that this was approved under the Rehabilitation Act. And the United States Government itself in briefing in other courts has said that this was approved pursuant to it. Can you bring in federal officials to, uh, uh, to testify years after the fact as to on what basis they acted earlier is very strange to me. I don't know what, what motive Secretary Udall uh, uh, has today that might induce him to say that. I wouldn't there was some fine. statement at the time I could understand it, but bringing him in how many years after? Forty years after? He has a good memory, Justice Scalia. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, Justice Scalia, I understand that. But the, the, the bottom line here is, the, the question is, is that, you know, is it absolutely clear that this is exclusively an EMLA lease? And the answer to that is there's a lot of evidence that suggests no. It's not in the form of EMLA. There are a lot of statements from other sources that suggest it. And, and more fundamentally, it seems to me, it, it, the Court ought not to view it as an either-or proposition. It could be adopted under EMLA or it could be adopted separately. The, the, the Section I 8 part your argument earlier was that all leases of mineral rights on the Navajo Hopi land are governed by the Rehabilitation Act. And it's not a factual question as to which statute anybody chose at the time of the negotiation of the lease. But recently, in the last few minutes, you seem to be arguing that it was a factual issue that was, that was unearthed only through later discovery. Well, I don't know that it's a factual question. It is that, candidly, we obviously focus more on IMLA because the Federal Circuit sort of — first of all, the Court of Federal Claims in the first — go around, adopted EMLA as the test, and just said, you lose because you don't have an EMLA lease here. And we had argued there that, that it's not just an EMLA lease. And then we went to the Federal Circuit, and we won on the grounds that it wasn't, you know, that EMLA controlled here, and we should prevail on that basis. When it was sent back down, and we obviously didn't have EMLA available since the Federal Circuit specifically precluded us from any further reliance on EMLA and looked at the other provisions, we tried to understand the, their context. And then that, you know, all I'm trying to do is, explain why it is that we would suddenly focus more on the Navajo Act, not to say that you couldn't read the statute and say it would necessarily apply in that circumstance. That isn't really my question, because I've tried to erase from my mind any suspicion about why you did or didn't argue it last time. And looking at it straight afresh, I think when the Court of Claims got this back, as any judge would, the first thing they do is look at the words of the old statutes, look at the words of the new statute and try to figure out if the new statute that you cited is somehow more supportive of your claim than the old one was. Right. Okay. So what have we got here in that respect? What we seem to have is two later provisions that say the government will have no liability when it enters into leases. I mean, maybe that helps you, but at the moment I'm slightly escaping it. And uh, then I guess there's some regs that were promulgated after the lease was entered into, and seem on their face to deal with other matters. Okay. Now, what am I missing? I'm not sure I understood the last part about Well, the regs you didn't emphasize, so forget them. If you don't want to rely on them, we won't. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, but I looked for everything I could find that would support you on this basis. Right. And there you are, so I want you to add something. Well, I, I would go back to Justice Alito's first question of Mr. Needler, which was, this provision has a duty in it, doesn't it, and because it has an approval requirement? And the answer is yes. This Court in Navajo One looked further at EMLA, at that specific statute, and concluded that that statute overall had a very significant 
limitation embedded in that duty. And the question is, is there anything in the Rehabilitation Act that, that has that same limitation? Okay. And my answer to that is no, there is nothing in it. And, and contrary to the overall intent of EMLA, which was to guarantee self-sufficiency, the overall intent of this statute was to allow the Navajo to come somewhere near the standards. In addition to that, I do think there are regulations that do require the Secretary to, to invoke a, a, a fair market value assessment of the rates that are embedded in this lease, and that he did not, and he clearly did not do that. Even if you're right about the <clears throat> duty-creating aspect, what, talk a little about the money-mandating aspect the second stage of the analysis under Navajo 1? Well, I, th I think the key to that is, is sort of twofold. One, I, I think when you — in the absence of some clear statement in, in this statute akin to the one that existed in EMLA that reduces the duty of the United States, that the Court ought to then simply examine this against the background of trust principles and say, you have a duty, you ought to exercise your duty consistent with your role as a trustee, and you ought to, and you ought to be acting in the best interests of the Navajo Nation. Before we find a waiver of sovereign immunity opening, opening up the Treasury of the United States, we usually insist on something a little more specific than general trust principles. And then the second, I mean, if you're not, if you're not prepared to accept the general trust principle, although, again, they go through the context of a specific imposed duty that, that 635A has in the first instance. But even if you want to go beyond that, then I go to 635B and C, where, where Congress clearly seems to have in mind the possibility of not having liability imposed in certain circumstances, and yet left 635A there without a similar protection for the United States, which, again, may not be the compelled inference, but it certainly seems to me to create a fair inference. Well, that's not how the Secretary reads 635, and isn't he entitled to Chevron deference? Well, not, unless you're saying that's — I don't know in what context, Mr. Chief Justice, you're talking about. I mean, I, to be sure, his lawyers don't want to read it that way because they're in litigation right now. But I don't see anything in the statutory scheme or in the regulatory scheme that would say that. And certainly, if you go back and look at the Secretary's um, brief uh, in their analysis of the, of the regulatory scheme, the the let's see if I can find the specific pages 25 to 26, where the, where they point out that there was a gap where where the secretary did not exclude mineral leasing from the 635. What did Secretary Udall think about this? He's totally on board with us, Justice Scalia. <laughs> Face on the brief. <laughs> I just conclude with the Section 8 arg argument, which is to, to recognize that the Secretary did owe a duty of candor and, and disclosure embedded in Section 8. That program did not end. That disclosure responsibility did not end. What the measure of damages for that breach of duty is a question that obviously is still open on remand. But the notion that the Secretary can behave the way the Secretary did in this case which is to know that he was not going to take, to take personal jurisdiction over the final decision, command that no decision be made, leave the Navajo in a state of distress under those circumstances, force them to negotiate with one hand tied behind their back at a minimum, and then ended up in an agreement that was half what the fair market value would have been for the quality of coal is an outrage, and the Court ought to allow the damages action to go forward. If there are no further questions, I urge the Court to affirm. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Uh, Mr. Needler, you have nine minutes remaining. Uh, first, Mr. Chief Justice, with respect to the um, uh, text of Section 5, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't by any means suggest that it covers mineral leases. The, the pertinent phrase is uh, 
that the uh, the, the tribe or members of the tribe may lease, with the approval of the secretary, may lease for various rel religious, recreational, or business purposes, including the development of utilization or utilization of natural resources in connection with the operations under those leases. It's not a freestanding mineral lease or resource lease provision. It's, it, it, it says including and in connection with operations under such leases, referring back to business leases or the or the other the other things there. So I think on its face it doesn't suggest it covers mineral leases. Well, the, the but, it did, no, it, but it says the development or utilization of natural resources in connection with operations under such leases, and 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 what's above are a, a recitation of things that don't include mineral leases. It, 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 it's educational, recreational. Uh, and, and business leases. And, and as we explained, there was specific Why isn't it a public purpose to develop Indian minerals that, that benefits the Indians and the whole public? Well, it says business purposes. And as no, we explained — it's a public. For public religious — I mean, that would, public would be like for a, a, a school, if, if a state was going to put a school on or, or something. But, but the — but uh, — as we explained in our brief, there was a sp specific reason why Congress enacted this. There was a gap in the authority to lease for these types of purposes at the time this was enacted. And why did well, business well, purpose — Well, even if, if, if I may have just one minute, Justice if, if you get revenue from the natural resources, why isn't that for a public, religious, educational purpose? They get revenue from leasing? Well, the, the, the example would be. I, I, I just, I, I just think you give too cramped a reading to section five. Well, the, the, the example would be if you, for example, if you were going to use water, and th this is the Navajo reservation, if you needed water for, a, for a business and sink a well, you'd be utilizing or developing the natural resources in connection with a surface lease. Uh, but, but, uh, the last section of, the last sentence of section five says nothing in this section shall be construed to repeal or affect the authority under other provisions. And it's the other provision that's IMLA. IMLA. The regulations. May, may, may I just yep. supplement Justice Kennedy's question? Why can't the development of the mineral leases be regarded as an adjunct to a business enterprise? Well, I, I mean, business purposes are. I, 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 I suppose they could, but, but, in, in, in the terminology, mineral leasing, as we explained in our brief, that the categories of leasing that are, are, have always been handled differently. Mineral leasing is the term that is used for, for minerals. Business, grazing, farming, we explained this in, uh, uh, in our brief, that, tho that those are uh, different. The regulations that were utilized to implement Section 5 had never included specific provisions for mineral leases. The they have always been under other, other uh, provisions. Have the regs specifically addressed the uh, scope of business purposes? Uh, they, they not beyond basically repeating them, but, but, they, don't, but they, they, for example, talk about rental value. Which is not the way you describe mineral leases, which are which are royalties, not rental value. Uh, I, if I could also address the argument about sections B and C. Sections B and C of this Act provide a, were first of all enacted after Section A, so I don't think much of an inference can be drawn. But they were situations, special types of conveyances that the tribe was going to make. One was for fee land that, that it was that it was transferring. There would be no reason to think the United States should be liable for that, for what the tribe did with its own fee land, and Congress just wanted to make sure of that. The other was that the tribe could convey trust land to municipalities and that sort of thing, and what the statute says thereafter, the United States won't be liable. The United States was just making sure it was washing its hands of it. Under Section A, we aren't saying that there could be no lease under which it could conceivably be 
be for a business purpose in which the United States could be liable. If there was a regulation establishing a minimum floor and the, and the lease terms went below that, then that might be a circumstance in which liability could be imposed. But otherwise, Justice Breyer is completely correct. This statute on its face imposes no more of a duty on the Secretary with respect to the approval of whatever leases are covered than IMLA uh, imposed on the Secretary with respect to uh, with respect to mineral leases. And, con- the, and another important point is, as this Court pointed out in the Cotton Petroleum in Montana versus Blackfeet tribe, the IMLA was enacted to bring uniformity to mineral leasing. And the notion that Congress would have implicitly wanted to carve the Navajo and Hopi out of that general authorization and that pre-existing set of regulations and cover it by, by a provision like this, we think, is just not consistent with the way Congress has dealt with mineral leases um, over, the, over the years. Um, I, I also just wanted to come back to this idea of, of imposing liability on, on the basis of the common law. Because the example of what the Federal Circuit did in this case, with all respect to that Court, we think strayed so far from what this Court laid down in Navajo One that it's important for this Court, however it thinks it disposed of the case before, to make clear that liability cannot be imposed unless, as this Court said in Navajo, there is is a specific rights-creating or duty-imposing language in the statute itself. The theory that has been adopted in some lower court uh, Federal Circuit decisions is you can look at a hodgepodge of statutes, one dealing with environmental concerns, one dealing with rights of way, one dealing with this, add them all up and say the United States has control, and therefore out of that sort of bucket of statutes, you can impose trust responsibilities. That's fundamentally inconsistent with the Tucker Act, which requires that the liability be based on the statutes themselves And you have to look at each statute and each regulation that governs the United States in Indian affairs in the same way under the Tucker Act you would look at what governs the United States elsewhere to decide whether there's liability. Can I ask one one question I probably should have asked earlier, but uh, uh, there's no dispute as the case comes to us. I know the government has taken the position there was no breach of trust, but do we we do have to decide it on the assumption that there was a breach of trust that caused all this damage? No, no, I, I think that's not at all correct. With respect to the approval of the lease terms in 1987, under a provision that provided for reasonable lease adjustments, the Secretary approved leases negotiated by the tribe at 12.5 percent, the tribe entered into two other leases at the very same time that are not the subject of this case for 12.5 percent. That's the standard royalty rate. And the tribe got other benefits from this as a package. With respect to the arguments about what the Secretary did on, a, uh, on appeal, it's, it's even clearer than all this information about the Secretary meeting with Peabody's lobbyist was before the Court before, and the Court found no violation of any statute or regulation. But it's even clearer on remand, as we point out on page 22 of our reply brief, that the Tribe was fully aware that the Secretary was not going to had, — had said the uh, appeal was not going to be acted on and had sent the parties back to negotiations. In fact, when Chairman Zah of the Tribe opened the negotiations on August 30 of 1985, he said — it appears that the Secretary wants us to take another shot at negotiating the lease. He knew well, what I'm not what sure that's responsive to Justice Stevens's question. I mean, you're arguing the merits, but those haven't been decided. Well, what, what, the, what the Court of Federal Claims said along those lines was a legal conclusion, not a factual conclusion. The, and the, the, the facts as described were what they were before, and the Court found no violation. Uh, and, and as we say, it's clear factually on remand that the tribe knew but again, that was just — it's not a factual rep- uh, determination that has to be taken as true. 
for one thing, it was summary judgment, not, not factual findings. But, but it, does, it, it was just a legal conclusion. And, and it, at that, it was a sort of legal conclusion drawn from general notions of fiduciary responsibility, nothing that has been channeled or, or, or embodied or codified in a, in, a, in a statute or regulation. And we think to unleash the common law to regulate the day-to-day operations of a vast agency like the Interior Department, which has to operate by statutes and regulations, uh, would be, uh, under Vermont Yankee and this Court's other jurisprudence, would be, would be unwarranted for the courts to do, and especially in a waiver of sovereign immunity uh, under, the, under the Tucker Act, to impose damages liability for the violation of a procedural regulation. And of course, the Court pointed out the last time that there was no prohibition against ex parte contacts for, the, for the, this sort of informal adjudication, as there isn't uh, across, the, across the board for government, uh, government activities. So no further questions. Thank you, General. Uh, the case is submitted.